clearly learn from Scripture that each and every one of us as individuals uh, created by God are in and of ourselves very valuable to God uh, as a creator. But we've also learned from Scripture there are times when God will add uh, additional value or blessings to our life. And amongst those many blessings, one is, is that we could count our children. If you're a parent, maybe you understand uh, what I'm talking about. It, it warms our hearts when our children come to us with great news, like, I did really well in school today. Or if you're a parent of an older child, uh, you always celebrate their good news, like uh, news of an engagement, they're going to get married. Uh, or, or maybe if you've always longed to be a grandparent, news that, that your, your child uh, is now expecting that next generation of your family. Those are things that bring joy to our heart in our day-to-day -day earthly lives. And that's truly a blessing from God. But you also know that every time there's a blessing from God, there's usually because of sin the other side of it as well. Uh, our children can sometimes bring sadness and concern into our lives. Uh, imagine your child coming to you and telling you they wrecked the family car. Of course, your first concern is the health and well-being of your child and maybe anybody who was in the vehicle with them. Is everybody okay? Okay. But then our next concern is, okay, now what are we going to do about this smashed up, up car? Uh, and uh, I don't know if you've had this with your older children. If the people that they choose to date and, and maybe even fall in love with. Sometimes it's a concern for the parents. Maybe we had this picture in our head uh, of just who we expected them to grow up and fall in love with, and when it doesn't go according to our plans, uh, it can sometimes be a little bit heartbreaking. Um, just so you know what, uh, I'm, I know what I'm talking about, our eldest son has uh, done this very same thing with my wife, and I caused a certain concern, not in regards to uh, his dating life, um, but when our oldest son, Caleb, was about seven or eight years old, he told us that he was becoming a Viking fan. Uh, and from that point on, he would no longer be cheering for the Green Bay Packers. And of course, this just broke our hearts. Um, and, and you can imagine the concern that, that caused for us. But I discovered with, a, with enough parental love, uh, patience, and prayer, it's my privilege to tell you that he grew out of this rebellious stage. And... Uh, my oldest son is a, a diehard Packer fan. Um, now, I recognize that these sporting things can sometimes be a um, little tongue-in-cheek, and, and we make fun of these things, the rivalries, the, the love-hate relationship between our favorite sports team and other sports teams. And it's, it's just a natural part of our celebrating the, the athletic world. But you have to ask yourselves, where do these rivalries sometimes come from? Where do they originate? Is it just because you're born in uh, the state of Wisconsin that you're automatically a Packer fan? Um, does it mean that you might have a family heritage and to go against that if you're going to cheer for the opposing team? Maybe your family will disown you. Uh, it's kind of fun to think through these things until we get to rivalries which sometimes can be much more devastating and, and dare I say, maybe even life-threatening. And, and that becomes the context, the backdrop for our turning point lesson today. It has to do with this love-hate relationship between the Samaritan people and the Jewish people. And, and I would suspect many of us are familiar with this, that is, it's written in the New Testament. But really, to appreciate our lesson this morning, we have to go back in time and we have to look at the origins. Why did these two ethnicities, uh, which were related, they were cousins, but why did they, why did they hate each other so much? And, and why did they allow their relationship, this broken relationship, uh, to really present an obstacle to not just their earthly lives, 
but their spiritual lives. And that's why we're going to turn to these few verses from John's Gospel today to take a look at how it is our Lord himself who, who takes what would ordinarily be an obstacle and he turns it into an opportunity. He shares with the Samaritan woman the truth of God's love and it not only changes her life but changes her eternity. We'll only focus on these three verses but for us to really appreciate this part of the conversation uh, it's only fair that we put them back into their context, so I'd like to show you a video that covers this entire narrative between Jesus and the woman at Jacob's well. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was winning and baptizing more disciples than John. Actually, Jesus himself did not baptize anyone, only his disciples did. So when Jesus heard what was being said, he left Judea and went back to Galilee. On his way there, he had to go through Samaria. In Samaria, he came to a town named Sychar, which was not far from the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by the trip, sat down by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw some water. Give me a drink of water. His disciples had gone into town to buy food. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. So how can you ask me for a drink? Jews will not use the same cups and bowls that Samaritans use. If you only knew what God gives, then who it is that is asking you for a drink, you would ask him and he would give you a life-giving water. Sir, you don't have a bucket and the well is deep. Where would you get that life-giving water? It was our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well. He and his children and his flocks all drank from it. You don't claim to be greater than Jacob, do you? Those who drink this water will get thirsty again. But those who drink the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring which will provide them with life-giving water and give them eternal life. Sir, give me that water. Then I will never be thirsty again. Nor will I have to come here to draw water. Go and call your husband and come back. I don't have a husband. You are right when you say you don't have a husband. You've been married to five men and the man you live with now is not really your husband. You have told me the truth. You are a prophet, sir. My Samaritan ancestors worshipped God on this mountain. But you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where we should worship God. Believe me, woman. The time will come when people will not worship the Father either on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans do not really know whom you worship. But we Jews know whom we worship because it is from the Jews that salvation comes. But the time is coming and is already here, when by the power of God's Spirit, people will worship the Father as he really is, offering him the true worship that he wants. God is Spirit, 
and only by the power of his spirit can people worship him as he really is. I know that the Messiah will come. And when he comes, he will tell us everything. I am he. I who am talking with you. So that is the whole narrative, and we're going to take a look at just a few aspects of the conversation that takes place, and it's really going to focus on something I think a lot of us have heard or, or are familiar with, and it's this, this tension between the Samaritans and the Jewish people. There, there are two very specific occasions from the ministry of Jesus uh, when this is put forward in front of us. One is, and a lot of people have heard about the parable of, of the Good Samaritan, uh, and Jesus holds up the Samaritan man as an example of who our neighbor is. He does it in a conversation with an expert in the law who thought he was doing pretty good in far, as far as his relationship with God goes. And Jesus clearly points out to him that he wasn't even keeping the second table of the law. He wouldn't even love his fellow man, uh, much less love God. The other occasion is when Jesus heals ten men of their disease of leprosy. Uh, and he holds up the Samaritan man as an example. Only one of them came back to say thank you for having healed him, and that man was a Samaritan. The other nine didn't, and it's the assumption is they were Jewish men. And so there are certain occasions throughout the public ministry of Jesus where he actually doesn't, uh, if you will, stoke the flames of this rivalry, but actually starts to show us that God truly does create each and every one of us with value, and, and he loves us, and Christ is here to redeem us. It's with this backdrop, then there's this lesson, and uh, what we find is immediately when Jesus asks this woman for a drink of water, this whole uh, love-hate relationship is laid before us. Uh, John explains it, he has, who he's writing to are non-Jewish people. Uh, mostly Roman people. And so you'll find these little parenthetical statements where he's explaining what's going on because the Romans didn't appreciate or understand this ancient rivalry between Jews and Samaritans. But it highlights for us something else John had included in the context verses indicating that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Uh, Samaria. And, and it's important for us to understand what does that actually mean? So it's good for us to know, if you were down in Jerusalem and you wanted to get to the northern region of Galilee, there were actually three different passageways that you could take. The primary one was the eastern uh, route, and most people took that on the other side of the Jordan. Uh, not only because it was a further away from the land of Samaria, but because it was the most uh, easy to travel. A Jew ordinarily would not travel through Samaria unless he absolutely had to. If time was short, because of course that's the most direct route, or there was some other business that needed to be conducted that might border on the edges of the Samaritan territories. Jesus didn't have either one of those going, so the question is, what does John mean when he said Jesus had to go through Samaria? And that starts to be laid out in front of us when we find him stopping at Jacob's well, and this woman comes out, and you know she doesn't start the conversation. Jesus engages her. We can understand her surprise. Because it was not ordinary for a Jew to interact with a Samaritan. And, and there's something else. I don't know if you caught it in that video. Um, but it was taboo for a Jewish male to speak to a Samaritan woman in public. But it panned down to his sleeve. And, and what they're trying to indicate was the fact that you could recognize certain men by what they were wearing. He wasn't just a Jewish male. He was a rabbi. 
And it was very much a no-no for a Jewish rabbi to interact any Samaritan, much less a Samaritan woman, in this public setting. So Jesus didn't need to go there for any human reasons other than the fact that this woman also struggled with sin and needed a rescuer. And that's where this lesson takes us. But to fully appreciate how the Lord takes what is ordinarily an obstacle and turns it into an opportunity, we have to go back about 800 years. And this touches upon that first lesson that we read. At that time, the Assyrians were the world power. They were conquering one nation after another. And one of the nations that got in their way was the nation of Israel, the northern ten tribes. Um, and after years of rebellion against God and disobedience to his word, God finally allowed the Assyrians to conquer that northern nation of Israel. And the capital city, also called Samaria, fell. And what takes place after that is something that wasn't unique to the Assyrians, but they kind of fine-tuned it where they would actually take the best and brightest people of a nation they had conquered, and then a second wave of the larger population, they would pick them up and relocate them in other parts of their kingdom. And then to replace those people that they had carried off, they would take other ethnicities, other nations, and import them into the land that they had just conquered. And when you think it through, humanly speaking, it's a pretty smart way to conquer people. Because once you mixed those ethnicities, eventually they would intermarry, intermarry each other, and that specific region would lose its national identity. So there would never be a reason for anybody to rise up and rebel against their conquerors, the Assyrians, because they had no national pride or, and in many ways, anything to protect. In that lesson, we heard about how uh, unwise or uneducated the people were about the land of Israel. Uh, because the assumption was made every nation has their own national god, and they kind of looked at Israel like that too. But Israel at one time had the worship of the true God. And when that was being dishonored to the extent it was, that's where they came up with the plan to send back the priest who would teach them how to worship. Unfortunately, long before the Assyrians, the Israelites were already walking away from God and their religion, their belief system was anything but what Moses had taught them long before. And as a, 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 an FYI, and I put that down at the lowest point, the Assyrians tried to do this with the southern kingdom of Judah and the city of Jerusalem as well, but God intervened because God could not allow for his chosen people, the people of Judea, to lose their national heritage, if you will, for the family of the promised Savior to intermarry with others. God's plan was to have him truly be born king of the Jews. Yes? Can I have this? Can you have that? That actually doesn't belong to us. That belongs to the other church. Yeah. Um, tell you what, we've got a Bible in back. Can I give it to you after the service? No, I'm not. i got to go. Okay. So let me grab it for you. Julie, you want to grab that? It's right under the box there. Oh, yeah. There we go. Right now. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming and visiting us. You bet. You as well. So, you, so what you see was is God had protected the Judeans. But, but this also then, if you will, creates a second layer of tension. Uh, and it has to do with this result of bringing these other people into this land of Israel. It's not as big of a deal for us today, at least I hope it's not. But the end result was a mixed race 
of people. Now, I know there has been throughout history issues where this is a challenge. If you think back to the earliest days of our American history, um, as the whites immigrated into America, they would intermarry with the American Indians, and the children of that relationship were always referred to as half-breeds. Uh, they were always considered to be second-class citizens. That is until our society kind of figured out, you know what, it isn't just what blood is uh, flowing through your veins that brings value to your life. A more recent example would be Second World War in, in Nazi Germany. They wanted to exterminate not just the Jewish people, but anybody who threatened their Aryan heritage. Because Hitler and others thought it's only by being a blue-blooded German would they ever attain this level of world domination. So we see examples of this same kind of thinking and how it does at times become an obstacle to people in this world. And the turning point for this woman and for us is to not let that happen, to not let our own human prejudice and our own likes or dislikes to stay in the way of the truth and love of God. What exasperated this was when the Babylonians did something similar with the Judean kingdom down below, uh, about 100 years later or so. And, uh, and I had told you the Assyrians weren't able to conquer them, but after many years of rebellion and, and false worship in, in Judah, God allowed the Babylonians to conquer them. Uh, and of course, there were several waves of people carried off to the land of Babylon. That's how we get the book of Daniel. He was one of them. Ezekiel would be another. Those were some who were carried off because they were amongst the best and the brightest. But the Babylonians didn't follow the practice that the Assyrians followed of importing people from other countries. And so those Jews that were left behind and then those who came back from the exile always considered themselves to be true blue Jewish people. And where this comes into a conflict is when it came time to rebuild the temple, their Samaritan cousins came down and offered to be part of that rebuilding project. Uh, they thought they were all the same, we should all just get along. Unfortunately, the uh, returning Jews and those who had remained in the land, very prejudiced against the Samaritan people for two reasons. One, you're not pure blood Jews, and two, you have no clue how to worship the true God. Now, there was a grain of, uh, of truth in that, but rather than teach them the right way or the truth, they just simply rejected them. So what happened was, is the Samaritans then set themselves against the people of Judah. Um, and this is an example, and I had referred to this previously. Uh, not only did they try to discourage the rebuilding of the temple, but they actually put together this letter and sent it to the, the king of the Persians, uh, Artaxerxes. And this letter was meant to get him to stop not only funding, but giving permission to the Jewish people uh, to rebuild the temple, and it worked. Um, Xerxes had no clue about all of the history, and so when he had one of his historians go back and look what led to the conquering of Jerusalem and the Judeans, he concluded these are some rebellious people, and if I allow them to go any further with their rebuilding plans, then they're going to rebel against me, and, and that at least for a time brought a halt to a building of the temple. So you can imagine that after these two events, the uh, relationship between the Samaritan people and the Jewish people, why it is what we understand it to be. It, it wasn't just a tension, it, it was an outright hatred. And that's why socially speaking, uh, John refers to the reality as, is basically in public, Samaritans and Jews didn't talk. And, and it would have been out of bounds for most people had they watched Jesus in action 
to not only speak to this woman, but to engage her in a conversation that might also lead to her, her doing him a favor of giving him a, a drink of water. What they would have not been able to see, though, is the one that was really there to deliver water that would be life-saving. I think it would be important for us to understand, not only does our Lord see the value in every single individual, knowing that God the Father has created each and every one of us, and that his mission was to come and save every single one of us, but I think it would be valuable to each of us if we also stopped and considered how Jesus, not just as the Son of God, but as our Savior, set aside whatever human biases or sinful pride we wrestle with. Um, you know, I joke uh, occasionally about the Packer-Viking rivalry. I mean, it is, it is kind of funny. I grew up with it. It, it was a, a topic of conversation. But on the other hand, I've also seen families that, that get downright angry with one another. Uh, words are said to each other over a, a sporting event that, that quite literally tears families apart. You think, what is it uh, about this? Is it human pride that our team's better than your team? Sometimes it's ridiculous the things that we human beings allow to divide us. And where we might ordinarily be able to share a friendship, all of a sudden an obstacle presents itself. Uh, of course, we know that none of us are perfect. and We all have our issues. And we, we confess those to God, and we pray that he forgives us. And we know that we are forgiven. That's why Christ came. His perfect sacrifice wipes away every single one of our sins. But sometimes it seems like we're willing to talk to God about the big sins. You know, there, there was that uh, hateful word I said. Or, or maybe I coveted something I, I, sh I shouldn't have. And, and we're more than happy to have our conversations with God about those things, and, and we will, will readily and willingly admit, I, I need forgiveness. But sometimes I'm not so sure we recognize what I think some people would call a lesser sin, which is still sin. And, and that is our own human prejudice and biases. And, and I'm not talking about the ones, that list of, of things the world tells us should be offensive. I'm talking about the things that are truly offensive. When we take a look at somebody and we judge them without ever knowing who they are, without ever engaging them in a conversation, we, we might have an opportunity where we can actually get to know them. And, and maybe God is presenting to us an opportunity to build a bridge the way our, our Lord built bridges so that we can talk to them about their spiritual lives that there's more to this world than just here and now, that there is an eternity. Sometimes I think what happens to us is that in our own minds we have this standard of expectations and of people, and they should do this or they should do that, and if it's not who we are and what we are or what we like, and all of a sudden we keep them at arm's length. Has it ever happened to any one of you, and unfortunately I know it's happened to me, where I took one look at a person and I thought I knew who they were, and I was the one that created the obstacle when God actually wanted to offer me an opportunity.
That's a really pretty drawing you got there. That's a really pretty drawing you got there. Hey, listen. I was just complimenting your drawing. I'm not a creep that's trying to get at you or anything. Girls these days, you think every guy's after you. You all have so much attitude, it's ridiculous. Sorry I offended you. I'm deaf. Let's do an experiment about human biases and prejudice. When that video started, how many of us thought it was going to be a black-white issue? How many of us thought it was going to be a boy-girl issue? Did any one of us anticipate it was a hearing and a non-hearing issue? You see what the devil and sin does, and while I pray to God none of us are, we each do have a bias. Maybe we're not outright prejudice against somebody else, but we do have our own standard of judgment, and oftentimes we apply that incorrectly to other people. That's no doubt what many did with this woman, not only because she was a Samaritan, but there's this whole part of the conversation about her marital life. She had had five husbands, and now she was living with a man with whom she was not married. In most people's minds, Unfortunately, I think in a lot of Christians' minds, they would think this is a person who doesn't deserve my time or my energy or my conversation. Notice that Jesus sees something else. What would ordinarily be an obstacle for most people, he finds to be an opportunity to share with her the entire reason why he had come, not just to save her, but to save all of us. And so he engages her in this conversation. And while she doesn't immediately recognize he is the chosen one of God, she does assess that he's obviously no ordinary man, a prophet, she refers to him. He knows things that no human being should know without ever having had a conversation with her. Now, here's the interesting thing and why we focused in on these verses, because if you've heard sermons about this before, I know I've probably wrestled with this in my own ministry is, He's talking about her marital status, and all of a sudden she shifts the conversation to talking about worship. And a lot of people assume she's trying to change the subject because, after all, this is pretty uncomfortable territory for her to be having this conversation with this total stranger, prophet or not. Truth is, there's nothing in the text which supports that kind of conclusion. And so I think it's only right and fair to her that we actually take a look at what it does say. Here's a man who knows things. 
more things than most of the males that she's probably met in her life. And she has a burning question that she wants answered. She wants to know about her relationship with God. Because here's somebody on the other side of that question with whom she and her people have argued for hundreds of years. So all of a sudden, this man shows up in her life who might have some answers. And so she asks him the question that is important. Not how did you know about this man I'm living with, but how do we really enjoy our relationship with God, which we most obviously express through our worship. And so she asks a man who maybe and hopefully has the answer. Are the Jews right? Or are the Samaritans right? Or maybe do we both have it wrong? Well, here's the interesting thing. After the Samaritans' help was rejected by the Jewish people, they went off and built their own temple, right on Mount Gerizim, which overshadowed Jacob's well. They were sitting at the very foot of the context of this question. And about 150 years before Jesus arrived, a Jewish king destroyed that temple, only adding to the tension and the hatred. Now here's a man who's willing to stop, a Jewish male, a rabbi who's willing to stop and talk to her. And so she needs to know, she wants to know, what is your expert advice? Who has it right? How does this relationship with God actually work out? And that's when he gets into the conversation about who Messiah is. And you can see she wants to know that because she's expecting him. When Messiah comes, he's going to give us these answers. Little did she recognize at first that God sent Messiah to give her those answers. But that conversation, the opportunity that Jesus avails himself of, actually touches her life and her heart so much that when she goes back into town, she tells others, I think I've found Messiah, I think I found the one that we've been worshiping. Whether we've been doing it right or wrong, I think the one that God promised to send to save us is here. Imagine somebody sharing that kind of news with, some, with somebody else that compels them to go and talk about it with friends and neighbors. Can you think of anything but the truth of God's word that makes that kind of drastic change in people's lives? Which again compels us to see this not only as her turning point, but our turning point as well. I don't want to drag you through a hard remembrance, but I think it's only fair that we'd spend some time considering all of the opportunities that we've missed. Maybe it's our own human fears. Maybe we're, maybe we're not that comfortable talking with other people, strangers. And yet the Lord asks us to, to share his love with others. Whether we like them or not, that's really not our call. And maybe, maybe it's not our own fear, maybe it's, it's our own prejudice, maybe it's something we were taught from little on, that you don't talk to these people. You ever notice how it's certain people, the way they dress, whether they're shaven or not, how they talk, that will sometimes tell us whether or not we think it's safe to engage them in a conversation, especially a conversation about not just their life, but their eternity. Eternity? How many times has God actually hand-delivered to us the opportunity to be his witnesses, to be disciples and do what disciples do, to tell others about the master, the teacher? And instead of taking advantage of that opportunity, it became this huge obstacle in our lives. And maybe we not only regretted not having taken the time to talk to them about Jesus, but later on we felt guilty and ashamed and once more found ourselves at the foot of the cross asking our Savior to forgive our sins and maybe praying that he would forgive that person's sins as well. And 
asking for another opportunity to speak with them. You see what Jesus does. He offers this woman this turning point. She could have ignored him. She could have walked away with her water jar. You're a Jew. I, I can't talk to you. But when push comes to shove, she recognizes here was somebody that could actually bring meaning to her life. And boy, did he. He changed it, just like he's changed each and every one of ours. And so as the Lord now asks us to see opportunities wherever we can, we get the chance to do the one thing this world refuses to do, especially with some of these prayers on the board and the news. It's pretty clear how much sinful human beings prefer hatred over love, how things can so easily divide and tear us apart. And it's only the Son of God who can actually come and build that bridge of love, not just with us and God, but with us and each other. In a few minutes, you're going to be leaving, going on your merry way, getting back into the routine of the world. God's going to present you with certain turning points this week. Be ready to look at them closely, because where, on the one hand, you might see an obstacle, I pray God also leads you to see an opportunity. In ancient times, a king had his men place a huge rock on a roadway. He then hid in the bushes and watched to see if anyone would move the rock out of the way. Some of the king's wealthiest merchants and courtiers passed by and simply walked around it. Many blamed the king for not keeping the roads clear, but none of them did anything about getting the stone removed. And so it happened that one day a peasant came along carrying vegetables. Upon approaching the rock, the peasant laid down his burden and tried to push the rock out of the way. After much pushing and straining, he finally managed. After the peasant went back to pick up his vegetables, he noticed a purse lying in the road where the rock had been. The purse contained many gold coins and a note from the king explaining that the gold was for the person who removed the rock from the road. You see, in life, every obstacle that we come across gives us an opportunity, an opportunity to improve our circumstances. And while the lazy complain, others will create opportunities through their kind hearts, generosity and willingness to get things done. So see every problem as an opportunity and a chance to become better and to grow.